As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me today to recap the weekend performances of some of our best and brightest soccer players is a man who has a better record than Christian Pulisic when it comes to FA Cup finals. He has yet to lose. It's Joe Lowry. <laughs> Hello, Joe. That is 100% factual. Come at me, Christian Pulisic. What are you? I mean, Captain America 2, as Ryan Bailey calls you? Come on, get on my level. Uh, right. I mean, he's lost the one. You've lost the none. So I think right now you have the advantage. We'll see how it plays out over the course of both of your careers. I'm not ruling anything out. Uh, we are going to talk about Christian Pulisic later. He is one of the players that I wanted to spotlight this weekend. We are going to be talking about six Americans who did things this weekend. Maybe a few other ones in there at random points. But Joe, since... I did the intro with Europe. Let's start with Major League Soccer, shall we? Oh, let's do it. I wanted to talk about Eric Williamson. As we were getting together and trying to figure out, okay, who are we going to bring up? Who are we going to discuss? Basically, the first player that came to my mind, certainly the first domestic player, but kind of the first player in general that came into my mind was Eric Williamson. He started and played the full game for the Portland Timbers in their 2-0 win over the San Jose Earthquakes on Saturday Taylor, he had both assists playing in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a role that he really hasn't played in, at least for Portland before, and looked really, really good. I think this is just an all part of some sort of elaborate Portland-based scheme to make Jason Christ look really bad. <laughs> it really does seem to happen. Like, every week or every other week, there's another clip in which somebody can snarkily but accurately say, I wonder if this would have been of use when we were trying to qualify for the Olympics. But let's not have snark, Joe. Let's instead talk about that new role you mentioned uh, and what he's doing with Portland. Yeah, so he started as the deepest central midfielder in Gio Savarese's midfield. So he started as essentially the defensive midfielder, which is not usually his job. Usually it's Diego Chara and Eric Williamson playing next to each other. We saw that all through last season. We've seen it multiple times already in this young Major League Soccer season But Diego Chara wasn't in Portland's game day roster. So Eric Williamson then slotted back a little bit further in midfield. He had uh, Yimmy Chara and Andy Polo playing in front of him. Sometimes those guys looked like dual eights. Other times they looked like a little staggered. It doesn't matter so much. The, The key point here that I'm trying to make is that Williamson was that number six. And he did really, really well, almost surprisingly well in that role. And 
he he still exhibited a, a very similar set of skills that he uses higher up the field. He wasn't shackled by that defensive midfield role like I thought he might be. He still mm-hmm. drove forward. He still was an influence in the attack. And that leads right into his first assist of this game, which is the one I really want to focus on. He had one in the fifth minute and then one in the 74th minute. That last one was a nice little clipped cross to the back post from Marvin Luria for Portland to ice that game against San Jose. But the first one, Taylor... Fifth minute, early on in the game, Eric Williamson picks up the ball at the edge of the final third, kind of, and he drives it forward, absolutely toasts former Atlanta United midfielder Eric Rometty, and then plays this lovely outside-of-the-foot slipped pass into the box for Yumi Chara to run onto, and then Chara finishes. That that play doesn't happen. That shot doesn't get created without Eric Williamson driving forward, beating an opposing midfielder, and playing that lovely textured ball into the box. It is... It's like poetry when you watch it. It really is so smooth, and it's just this quality that Eric Williamson has to drive forward in a way that not really a lot of other midfielders in Major League Soccer can. And ride the challenges, keep control, have the vision, uh, and then execute the pass. All very solid things. My question then becomes, in some of those runs... It's like when you have a a scrambling quarterback, sometimes the play is designed for that quarterback to run. Sometimes the quarterback has to scramble because the system is broken down. Did you get a sense with Williamson? Is that a thing that he was sort of given license to do if, if it was on? Or did you feel like you saw him sort of getting out of some sticky situations because he had to as opposed to it being by design? Yes. My answer to that question is yes. The, the first part, <laughs> okay. the first That's part, I think <laughs> it's, it's a big part of what Eric Williamson brings to this Portland group. And so I think Gio Savarese sees that and says, okay, we might as well take advantage of that for Portland. And maybe in a game like this where he's playing as the six instead of a little higher up as the eight, you would expect, and I did expect to see a little bit less of those, uh, some fewer driving runs, but he still does it. And I think it's still part of Portland's game plan. But To get to the second part, you know, talking about the scrambling quarterback who has to scramble out of desperation, we see some of that as well. There's this moment I have labeled in my notes as just moment for improvement, because I think that's what it is. I sent this to you, Taylor. It's in first half stoppage time. Eric Williamson steps in to win the ball off of San Jose's Carlos Fierro. Then he twists and turns and dribbles out of kind of a dicey situation. He doesn't have a lot of support. So there's that scrambling quarterback thing that you're talking about. He beats Rometty again. He beats Fierro. All of those things are great. But then he just keeps dribbling and keeps dribbling. And this is what I want to see improve from Eric Williamson, at least with the ball, is his ability to read plays, to decide when the right moment to lay the ball off, when the right moment to pass the ball off is. Because in this moment, in first half stoppage time, he just keeps going and going and going, goes, dribbles centrally, and then shoots. And it's a pretty tame shot from outside the box that doesn't really test JT Marcinkowski. So I, I want to see Eric Williamson develop the understanding of when to make this decision versus that decision. When to play the ball to Jeremy Abobasi, who he had on his right in this play. It wasn't a great high value pass, but probably better off passing from there than putting on the shot that he actually put on frame. So it, it's, yeah. it's a slight thing, but I think that's one thing he can improve when they are in more scramble moments up in Portland. I love that, Joe. I love that spot and I love that idea and I love it being a thing he can improve because you're totally right. That 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 is an important decision as to when you continue to carry the ball versus when you lay it off and then stay in your position, stay in your shape. And you're also absolutely right that it's okay on occasion. It's okay if you kind of see the space and you want to just kind of back yourself and, and have a go. If you're doing that maybe even once a game, I think it's okay. But if you don't know when to make that distinction and even more worrying would be if he does it once and it doesn't work and then he tries it again and it's almost that like, I'm going to prove that I can do that. Like then you're sort of seeing the 
emotion take over as opposed to the game plan taking over. So I think that's a really interesting one to keep an eye on. Do you think it just looks like he evades pressure, gets away from somebody, and then like plays a sort of short pass and then checks back? Is that what you want to see? Yeah, that'd be nice. And I, I want to go back to this clip just to say, I, I don't think I'm being too harsh, but there's a chance I am mm-hmm. in this specific moment because there really isn't a ton of structure around him. It is a scramble moment. So there weren't a, a plethora of better options for him to play. But in general, zooming out a little bit, yes. I'd love to see him get on the ball, break a line with his dribbling instead of his passing because he doesn't really do that right now with his passing. That could be something that we, we see improve from him down the line as well. But break a line, drive forward, and then do that Yimmy Chara pass, pass the ball into the box, thread, play the simple ball at that point rather than trying to make things a little bit too complicated. I think that could be an area that we see Williamson improve on. And in addition, maybe to his defensive work at times, he doesn't pressure the ball a ton. It's a lot because Diego Chara does all of that for Portland, but there's room for him to improve there, becoming more of a defensive presence. But with the ball, at least, yeah, finding that that right moment to lay the ball off and keeping things a little bit more simple, I think would go a long way for Eric Williamson. Final question for me about Eric Williamson. We know that we're going to get, uh, or at least we assume we're going to get a couple different rosters from the U.S. this summer for the Friendlies in the Nations League and then for the Gold Cup. Uh, I think he's probably a little ways away from being in that senior team, the, the, the A team, if we are sending the A team to the Nations League. But for the Gold Cup, if Greg Berhalter go, does go with a more experimental squad, do you think he'll be in there? Or if it's easier, would you like to see him included in that Gold Cup squad to see how he does as sort of a, not even an established figure, but sort of a like a figure that has familiarity with the system and the setup, but maybe isn't uh, like a definite roster selection when it comes to that like final 23 squad. I'd love to see him in there. Let's experiment. Let's see what he can bring in even a different role still. For Portland, he either so far this season has played as a six or as an eight in a four, two, three, one mostly. And, and with the U.S. men's national team, he'd, playing, he'd be playing as an eight in a three-man midfield. So get a, a little bit of a different look. I think Eric Williamson and, and Christian Roldan have probably been the two best American mm-hmm. central midfielders. Add in Leggett maybe into that group for the Galaxy. But he's earned a, a right to at least be in contention to get called up. And certainly, I think, to be in that camp and maybe fight for minutes in the Gold Cup. He's not a first-choice guy for the full team, like you're saying, Taylor. But I don't see a reason not to bring him into this group at all. I, th- I think he's got the talent, and I'd be really intrigued to see what he could bring. All right. Any other things we wanted to talk about with Eric Williamson? I don't think so. I'm curious to see who you are talking about from an mm-hmm. MLS standpoint, Taylor. I am talking about Julian Araujo, or as Felipe would call him, Julian Araujo. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Columbia, for strange pronunciations. Uh, he is the 19-year-old right-sider for the LA Galaxy, uh, because I think I've seen him play Every position on the right side for the Galaxy this season in yeah. this game, uh, in their 2-0 win over Austin. He, I think, started at right back when they had a formation change in the second half to a back three. He then became a right wing back where he got the assist for, for the Galaxy's second goal, Chicharito's goal in that game. Uh, and I thought he looked very, very good in attack, especially passing at attack, maybe slightly less so in defense. Joe, I'm assuming you've seen at least a little bit of Yulian Araujo this season. Uh, what what are your sort of general impressions on him before I dive into my potentially misguided thoughts on Araujo? No, well, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have. I have seen a lot of Julian Araujo this year, and it's been it's been kind of a mixed bag from him. I think of Julian okay. Araujo in my mind as this defensive presence. This guy who's going to come and lock you down. I still think he probably fits better as a a center back, maybe in a back three on the right side of a back three, rather than as a fullback or a wingback, or certainly as a winger. I don't think he's a great fit for that spot. But then he comes out 
and plays like he did against Austin with the ball and, and gets up that right side and can play this lovely bending cross into the box for Chicharito. And we've seen him do things like that for the U.S. men's national team. And the December, weird December game against El Salvador, I think we saw some of that. And then again against Trinidad and Tobago, if I'm remembering correctly, in January. He he can get forward and do some nice things. So I, I guess I'm just generally confused. Not It's not a bad thing. He's a young player mm-hmm. who's still evolving. But I'm, I'm kind of confused about Julian Araujo right now. What are his strengths or weaknesses that have you thinking he'd be a better center back than right back or right wing back? Well, I think while he can whip in a nice ball, I don't think of him as this ball dangerous dribbling kind of player mm-hmm. on that right side. And that that's kind of what the right back role has evolved into over the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's kind of just like an extra winger out there. And I don't think Araujo has the skill to to go at you and beat you 1v1 three times a game. And you don't always need to have that, but it's nice if you do have that. I don't think he has that. I think instead he's he's better maybe passing from deeper, whipping in an early cross, or, or occasionally overlapping and getting to the end line, and just getting on the end of a ball from a winger who's played him through. Then he can just deliver that ball, and he doesn't have to do the dirty work to get there. So that's why I kind of tend to think that he might be better off in a deeper role where he doesn't have to go 1v1 as much. I like his ability to pass the ball through the lines. We don't see a lot of that with the Galaxy, but I think he can do that. And I think he's got that defensive ability to be a strong presence in the back. So that's kind of what makes me think he might be better a little deeper on that right side. Okay. So a couple of things there. I absolutely agree with you about his defensive ability and overall defensive work rate. Because in this game, on a couple different occasions, Austin... Either were attacking down his side in a 1v1 situation or would overload the side and he had to sort of decide when he was stepping versus when he was tracking his runner. And I think he did a nice job of splitting that difference. And when that ball would then eventually be played, he kept himself in such a strong position and has the speed to be able to make up that little bit of a gap that might have opened. And at least twice, but in the one of the clips I sent you, he's able to sort of regain positioning and then get low and, and sort of grapple to hold the ball up, lay it off the galaxy clear. And that positioning, that awareness, and then the speed to augment those two things, I think is so important for his defensive work rate. Where I felt like I didn't see as strong of a performance was in his passing from a defensive position. I think he, once he doesn't maybe have the, the pressure of if you, if you give up possession here, it could easily lead to a goal because you are right back and you're trying to build out of the back. When he gets forward, I think there's the shackles are off a little bit. He's a bit more uh, like has license to do whatever he wants or, or just try to create things. And I think he doesn't have to worry about what happens if I turn the ball over. So when he was then in a more defensive spot, I saw him just hesitating a little bit more. And, and I think this is always a thing that I, I sort of note when it comes to a defender trying to play out is how many touches are they taking? Is the pass on with his first or second touch? And is that player then taking three, four, five touches to then play that ball? And a couple different times, he did hesitate. He did slow down a little bit. And sometimes it was because a player wasn't there and he was giving them time to get into the position they needed to be. So you could maybe blame the system. But there were Definitely other times when I could see that he wasn't sure which way he wanted to carry the ball or which person he wanted to pass to. And you can see him sort of evaluating options and slowing down. And I think a a better team or a stronger team is going to be able to punish him a little bit more. And I think that's something that other teams have maybe spotlighted is that he is there as a vulnerability potentially. So how he improves his passing out of the back when under pressure is a thing that I had as his uh, moment for improvement. And that's that's a really good point, something I hadn't thought of before. I think of Julian Araujo as being dangerous 
when he has the time to break lines. So maybe maybe mm-hmm. picture the Galaxy in a back three with Araujo on the right side of that back three as yeah. a center back versus a 4-4-2, which is not what Austin did in this game. But theoretically, against a 4-4-2, in that idea, if the other team's in a mid-block, he's going to have time on the ball, especially if it's coming from the left side over to him on the right. He's going to have time to break lines and, and, and not have to deal with someone closing him down immediately. That really wasn't the case in this game. That doesn't happen a lot with the roles he's given for the Galaxy. So maybe the distinction is he can pass the ball when he's not under pressure. But when he is under pressure, like you're saying, Taylor, he sometimes takes too many touches. He's still learning how to deal with that that defender closing him down. That could be something to watch for. And honestly, that could be a real sticking point for his ability mm-hmm. to actually play a little bit deeper because you are going to be under pressure a lot, especially if your team's building up from the back and, and you're playing a team that high presses. That's a risky situation. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's definitely a thing that I think can certainly be improved as the Galaxy get more just sort of team-wide understanding of who needs to be where and who needs to shift and who's supposed to be showing. And once things become a little more automatic, maybe we don't see as much hesitation on the ball, again, from a defensive standpoint from the Galaxy's own half. Because, as I said, in the second half, when he goes to right wing back and has a little more creative license... That's where I initially said, like, maybe needs to work on his passing a little bit and then change that to, I think, like short passing out of the back because his attacking passing, the ball in for the goal is is perfect. It's a low bending ball. It's around the defenders, but into the stride of Chicharito to finish. I shouldn't say easily, but it is a, a great ball that does all the work, essentially. And then Chicharito just has to be a good poacher, which he is. But even in the buildup to it, it's Araujo making a run down the line, then checking back to be available for the first pass. It's a good wall pass combination with uh, Sasha Kleshton. And then it's a smart run to sort of after that wall pass or when he's receiving it to make sure that he sort of puts himself in the best position to play the ball early and he does and it's a goal so I thought that passing was exceptional maybe just a little bit better a little bit sharper on the defensive side I think he has one moment where he goes for a lateral pass and passes it straight to an Austin player and we get a corner from it or uh, Austin ends up getting a corner from it I don't know why I said we Uh, (laughs) but but so I think those are the kind of like negative moments that stand out, but I saw significantly more positive moments from Araujo in multiple other aspects of his game. I, I think he's not necessarily one that I would expect to be on that Gold Cup roster, but he's a, he just continues to impress. He's another player that I'm very excited about. And again, he's only 19 years old, so there's lots of room for improvement. I think Greg Vanny being his coach will be very helpful to him, and I'm just excited for what Julian Araujo uh, does going forward, though we will try to cover other teams aside from the Galaxy, uh, because thus far I think we've covered them every single week, except for this past <laughs> weekend. Uh, so maybe we can change that up next time. Yeah, and, and Taylor, we get it. You're just a big Matthew McConaughey fan. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, of that's, course. That's, not, a, that's course. not an issue. Yeah, Araujo's a guy I'm excited to see more of. I still have questions about his game, as do you, but that's not a bad thing. We'll see how he grows and develops mm-hmm. under Greg Vanny and how he comes to play in the system. I think that's you know, a fine step for yep. us to be watching for in his young career. All right. I like it. I like the, the two players we've discussed already. Four more still to be discussed, but first, a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. All right, Joe Lowry, we've talked about two domestic Americans doing things this past weekend. Let's look abroad. Where shall we head next? Let us go to Italy to talk about Weston right. McKenney, who came off the yeah. bench. He got on the field in the second half in Juve's 3-2 win over Inter Milan on Saturday. This was a big win for Juve. Uh, they're currently fifth in Serie A yes, after that win. They still need a win and either AC Milan or Napoli to drop points for Juve to actually qualify for the Champions League next season. But if they don't win this game against Inter Milan, that probably doesn't end up mattering. So McKinney comes on in this really big game, comes on in the 58th minute. Juve are down a man, but up a goal at this point. It's two to one. Then some chaos happens that Weston McKinney is really not involved in. Inter equalize after a Chiellini own goal in the 83rd minute, and then Juan Cuadrado scores a game winning penalty a little bit later on in that second half to give Juve a 3-2 lead. But more, more I guess, relevant to our conversation, Taylor, isn't necessarily what all is going on for Juve, although we can talk about that if you'd like to. I think more I relevant... I want to talk about the Chiellini own goal for a second. <laughs> okay. I'm not yeah, gonna go lie, ahead. But we go can ahead. do that later on. We'll do that at the end of this conversation. Okay, that's fair. I think more relevant, at least for our American weekend review, review is the different roles that Weston McKinney played in this game. That's become a staple of his young career already. And he's had, he's had more stability this year for Juve. But because they're down a man, he comes on and starts as a central midfielder in a 4-4-1. Again, 10 men. And then he shifts out wide to the left after about 10 minutes. So he does a couple of different jobs over the course of his 30-plus minutes on the field. And I think that lent itself and, and lent this performance to some interesting, or it gives us some interesting takeaways from this performance about different ways that he maybe could be used for the U.S. men's national team down the line. I am excited to hear about those things. The one thing I wanted to add uh, so far was that you're absolutely right. He comes on after they get the red card. Uh, Benton Core is sent off. And I believe I'm correct in saying that that's basically an immediate change. Benton Core. Uh, gets the red, and then the, the next action I had in my notes for that game was Weston McKinney subs on. And maybe that's just a matter of they needed uh, a person who can play centrally and do some of the, the, the kind of work there. But I also like to think that that was a where a man down in a critical game, we need somebody to go in and execute the game plan, do exactly what's asked, not overcomplicate things and not make big mistakes. And I'm hoping that that's what happened and that's why he was brought into the game because – it was a performance in which them being a man down, I don't expect him to go charging forward and score the winner or something like that. But it, it is one where, at the end of the day, he doesn't really stand out in a negative way. And that, to me, is a is a big thing. And then watching some of the clips you sent me, Joe, I, I, I my takeaway was like, no, no, he's a very strong performer and a very yeah. good performer and a very necessary performer. Yeah, he got the job done off the bench. It's it's not easy. I kind of brushed over it, but it's not easy to do a couple different jobs in the span of 30 minutes in a really, really important game. And McKenney got the job done. He absolutely got the job done in this game. The focus for when I watched this clip, so I was really focused in on his role when Juve had the ball. Because I, I can't really help myself when I watch these club teams play. I can't help but overlay 
what I'm seeing with what I expect to see from the U.S. men's national team. And we expect the U.S. to have a lot of the ball in, in World Cup qualifying, in Nations League, in Gold Cup, in pretty much every situation, maybe outside the World Cup if they end up getting there in 2022. They're going to have a lot of the ball. And, and Juve did have a lot of the ball, even down a man when McKinney came on. And so the first role that McKinney played when Juve had possession, and especially in build-up, is he played as that deepest central midfielder, as a number six. So a moment I sent you, Taylor, in the 66th minute, Juve are playing out of the back. They rotate the ball over to their left side, and McKinney, as that single pivot, shifts over to try to help them build. So Alexandro plays McKinney the ball in Juve's defensive third. And then McKinney plays this kind of nice-looking first-time ball with his left foot that I honestly didn't know he had in his bag. It's not a ball that unlocks everything for Juve and gets them in behind Inter Milan's defense, but it's a nice ball to advance possession for Juve. Chiesa loses the ball. McKinney goes, hunts it down, does all that McKinney stuff that we expect, wins it back, then combines a little bit more. It's a great sequence, not just because of the ball-winning stuff that McKinney does and the combination play, but I think it's a great sequence that shows us that McKinney actually can help progress the ball out of deeper areas, which has been a concern of mine and also a concern of Andrea Pirlo's based off of where McKinney's been playing. He's almost always been up almost on an island, higher up the field in Mm build-up, playing in the forward line or playing off of Ronaldo and Morata. Not so in this moment. I think it's interesting for us to get a different look and see McKinney deeper down and see him actually do something productive deeper down in the field in build-up. And my frame of reference for this game uh, was having had the conversation with Christine Cupo last week about Juve and how they've kind of gotten themselves in this position. We did also talk about McKinney a little bit and how there was the breaking of COVID uh, protocol when he had the house party. Or did he have the house party or go to the house party? Either way, it was not great. Uh, Andrea Pirlo uh, did mention that his like discipline wasn't ideal and there were some other issues. So I think that had me thinking... Uh, things aren't going as well, and I think I gave that too much significance. It deserves some significance for sure, but I think then my expectations were so limited that then when he came on and did a lot of what you're talking about, Joe, it was just a reminder of like, right, this is maybe a little bit overblown. Things are still fine. He's still a very good player and an important player for that team. So uh, I think my nerves were definitely settled after last week. Well, and there's always this this ebb and flow, right, of how especially young players, I think, do for these big teams. We're seeing this for the first time ever, pretty much in American men's soccer history, this mass exodus of talent going over and playing for big clubs in Europe. There's going to be stretches, not even just games, but stretches where players aren't playing their best. And that's happened with McKenney at times later on in this season. But then he comes on and reminds us, like you're saying, Taylor, that he still has quality, still has ability to impact a game, even for a team as big as Juve, yes, in a down year, but still... So we see him be able to do some stuff deeper down the field and build up. And then a few minutes later, the 71st minute, just about five minutes after the the moment I just detailed, he's higher up, playing now on the left after a change for Juve. He's now playing left midfield. And and Juve are building up again. Chesney has the ball in his box. Inter Milan are pressing. So Chesney plays it long. McKenney gets his head on that long ball, flicks it forward to Rabiot, inter-track it, flick the ball. They track that flick, excuse me. Get the ball and, and don't allow Juve to progress any further from there. So even though there's no end result on this play, I think it's interesting, again, that we see McKenney higher up now, able to impact build-up in a different way, in a way that we could see if everything kind of goes to crap in World Cup qualifying, and it's maybe Daryl DK and Weston McKenney higher up trying to knock down balls 
and play from there and play more direct, play more over the top. That's not an impossible reality. It's not something that I think is especially likely, but there's no reason why we couldn't see McKenney play a little bit higher in buildup and actually try to just advance the ball a little bit more directly. I think that's something valuable to have, certainly in Berhalter's back pocket. With these players, we don't always have to have moments for improvement because I do think trying to extrapolate like big narratives from every single game can be a little bit difficult and can maybe put you in the wrong position. Joe, are there any things that maybe you'd like to see McKinney tighten up or improve upon from this performance? Anything that stood out to you in a negative way? Or for the most part, did you just see sort of reassuring signs and little moments that had you thinking, yeah, Weston's still Weston. He's good. We're fine. Yeah, I didn't see a lot to improve on from this game. There are still season-long and career-long things that he can build on. His passing still from deeper areas, even though I bring up that one positive moment, there is still room for improvement there. But man, there wasn't a lot of negative things to take out of this game. And that's mm-hmm. that's fine. Like you're saying, that's just fine. Yeah, especially when it's uh, this Juventus team uh, getting a red card and like, <laughs> yeah. conceding an equalizer to then say, no, nothing really stood out in a negative way is a definite positive in my books. Yeah. And, and did you want to go back to that Keelini own goal, Taylor? Cause I, I know oh, you yes. mentioned that Thank before. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah. You got Thank it. you for the reminder. Just, we didn't really talk about it in yesterday's weekend review aside from that it was just a chaotic game with VAR goals and a lot of penalties and this own goal. And if people haven't seen it, I just need to say it is one of the more ridiculous complaints from Giorgio Chiellini <laughs> because he's essentially I think it's he's running backwards trying to track Lukaku and he grabs Lukaku's jersey and Lukaku is just so strong that he essentially pulls Chiellini off of his feet because Chiellini is trying to hold on to him and it's just not able to do so and gets pulled backwards, loses his footing, the ball hits him and goes into the goal. And he then had the audacity to complain that he had been (laughs) fouled and pushed. And if you watch it, it really is. He just kind of like... It's like he's a cape for Lukaku. Like he grabs on and just holds on and goes fluttering in the wind and then hits the ground and the ball hits him. So it was just a hilarious moment that I think maybe we didn't give uh, its due yesterday with the weekend review. So I would uh, encourage people to watch that one and just see Romelu Lukaku absolutely boss Giorgio Chiellini. And to tie it back in, uh, I'm just thankful that it was not Weston McKinney (laughs) who got uh, posterized like that. Now I'm just imagining Romelu uh, Lukaku as Doctor Strange and then Chiellini as his cape. (laughs) And that's pretty much all I can picture at this point. So uh, take that for what it's worth. I I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, I will uh, continue on our European jaunt. I will take us to England to talk about the aforementioned Christian Pulisic, who got 22 minutes in Chelsea's FA Cup loss. Joe, did you watch this game or have you uh, seen any moments from it? I haven't watched this game. I have Mm -hmm. seen some moments, both that you sent me and then some clips. And then I listened to... You guys yesterday talk about it a oh, little bit as well. Thank you. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there is not a ton to talk about from this game for Christian Pulisic. As I said, it's 22 minutes coming on when they're down and they're chasing the game. They're trying to make something happen. And I think the big thing there for me is just that he's brought on to be a creative spark. Leicester sitting much deeper after they get the, the go-ahead goal. Uh, and I think really making life difficult for Chelsea. And that... Pulisic is the player that Thomas Tuchel brings in to sort of liven things up. And then that's literally what he does from the jump. I think his first moment of action is receiving the ball, going on like a 40-yard crossfield run, riding tackles. I think he megs somebody at one point and then just calmly playing the ball wide and moving into another strong position where he's in a little bit of space. A defender steps to him and that opens up uh, opportunities for other Chelsea players. 
I mean, short of them scoring straight off of that play, it really is ticking a lot of boxes for why Thomas Tuchel would have brought him in. And it was, I think, similar to Weston McKinney. It's an American player coming off off of the bench, which you don't always love to see. But then when you look at who they're coming off the bench for and the scenario in which they're being looked to by the manager to make things happen or not let things happen, as the situation may have been, it just it was another sort of solid moment for me, even with Pulisic not starting that game, that he's a player that Thomas Tuchel relies upon in those types of moments. Christian Pulisic is just the shock. He's the shock to Chelsea system and also mm-hmm. to Leicester system. I love that you brought up his first action. He gets on the field and all of a sudden he's just driving the ball forward into the attacking half towards the heart of Leicester's defense and that it ends up a little bit wider. But he just changes the game when he comes on and, and he's not always able to change the result. And we saw that in this FA Cup final. But he he brings a different look. He brings more speed in the front line than than Chelsea have anywhere else outside of Timo Werner, but their skill sets are different anyway. He brings this ability to move the ball from one half to the other, to drive forward and just to to change a game and to change even how a team's playing. If Chelsea need energy, Christian Pulisic is the perfect guy to turn to. And that kind of puts him in a, in a tough spot in certain situations because maybe he would start if he had a, just a tiny bit different skill set or he wasn't so darn fast and maybe he was a little bit more creative. But with the skill set that he has right now, he's the perfect guy to come off the bench and change a game or to, to start a match and just really go at the opposing team. His skill set is so valuable. It's so unique in the American player pool. I just mm-hmm. genuinely enjoy watching this guy play. Oh, yeah. And I think, again, Thomas Tuchel does, too. I think he enjoys him from that energy standpoint you mentioned. If Chelsea need energy, it's the creative attacking energy, but it's also the positive energy because you're right that it's he doesn't have any moments that lead to a goal or lead to a penalty or anything like that. But what it, what he does have is uh, moments when he finds space, he adjusts little runs, he sees somebody's getting a little bit loose, and he checks back, and now he's got the ball. And it tends to be a very quick half turn so that he now has attacking chances. But if he does play the ball wide, if he does lay the ball off, he's then making a darting run in behind, or he's making a run to the back post. And if that ball doesn't come, I didn't see him getting frustrated. I didn't see him throwing his hands up in the air. And to me, that's just such an important, it's a small thing, but an important thing because I've had those moments when a teammate is demanding the ball and you don't play it and they get frustrated. And if you're bringing somebody in to change the dynamic, to change the energy, and the first thing they do is get annoyed or frustrated when they didn't get the ball or they're just so about themselves and having, uh, like wanting to make an impact that if you lose sight of what you're doing and why you're being brought on, it can be problematic. It can have the, the opposite effect and you can easily kind of crumble that he was just a positive influence around that uh, that game for Chelsea. Again, just made me very happy. But I also then wanted to look at why he is able to do some of the things he can do. And I think basically I watched him. I know you're going to talk about Gio Reyna in a little bit. But there are similarities and then differences. And I was trying to think about what it is that makes Christian Pulisic, like in my mind, a little bit next level, a little bit more special. And I think... Uh, the way I'm going to describe this, I think it's a feature of his game. It's a thing that occurs regularly enough. But when he receives the ball, and it's usually a little bit deeper, he does it so tight to his body. His first touch is, is so close to him. And that can be a problem if you need... If you have longer legs, if you aren't as maybe quick with that second touch, then you've got to try to like get the ball out from underneath you. And so sometimes that can be a problem. For him, it seems to be a very deliberate approach because what it tends to do is pull a defender in. If he controls that ball tight, 
Sometimes I think it can even look like, oh, he's miscontrolled it. I can get in there and win that ball. But other times I think it's just he's checked back into space. He's received a ball. The defender has to close. But that first touch, instead of being two yards out in front and now it invites that challenge a bit more, it makes the defender have to cover more ground when it's close to him. And that's where the acceleration that he then has, that explosive acceleration, is so important. And so three different times like within 10 minutes of coming on, uh, I think it's Chowdhury, two of the three times, tries to step to him, tries to make a play on the ball because of that settle. It's almost like a little bit of a a feint, or it's like a, you're you're drawing them in to then get around them. And that's exactly what he did. That, that does that little explosion of pace, gets away from the defender, and it opens up the field. One time he draws a foul. Two other times I think he goes on a run and then lays the ball off. But it's that tightness, the closeness of that first touch, and then the explosion of acceleration once the defender has come close that I think we tend to see at least once a game when Christian Pulisic is involved, usually more than that. But it's a thing that I couldn't quite put my finger on and really tried to pay attention to in this game. And that's what I'm going to say is a, is the thing he does. I'm going to keep paying attention to that and see if that is a regular thing or as much as I think it is. But that's my sort of breakdown of what he did in this game to have so many opportunities and to cause such moments of panic to Lester. Well, and I think that's a really good point. I'm, I'm As you're talking, I'm thinking about how... How do I evaluate a young attacking player, specifically a winger? Because that's what Christian Pulisic is, even though he plays inside more often. He's this attacking player who's versatile in his positioning. And and I guess one easy way to, to evaluate them is to see how dangerous they are in open space. Right now, Cade Cowell for the San Jose Earthquakes, a player we've talked about the last couple of weeks, he's really dangerous in open space. But one area where I don't think Cade Cowell is dangerous is in tight spaces, or certainly not as dangerous and zooming out a little bit from Cal, just thinking about young attackers in general, I think we see a lot more young dynamic wingers dangerous out in space when they can push the ball forward, mm. drive, use their speed, use their dribbling ability in open grass. But an area that we don't see as many quality young attackers, or, or I guess an area that we don't see as many young attackers develop that quality in, is in tight spaces, is with their first touch in a moment where there are four defenders surrounding them in a moment where they're just in this little pocket and they have to keep it tight, turn and then drive forward or then lay the ball off quickly. That I think Taylor, you're right. is something that Christian Pulisic does really well. He's learned that skill. He's developed that skill where he can be dangerous in little tiny moments, little tiny spaces, or he can hmm. push the ball out, take a big touch and beat you and then dribble past three other folks and score a goal, right? He can do both. And I, I think that might be a key development step in any young attacker's career. And, and Christian Pulisic, I think, has has gotten to that level. And, and it may have happened a while ago, honestly. I don't know why Little Tiny Spaces made me chuckle. But it is, <laughs> and I like it. Uh, I'm going to be thinking about that during the break. Unless, Joe, you have anything else to add about Christian Pulisic's performance this weekend? Take us forward to our lovely sponsors, Taylor. All right. Two-thirds of the players we're going to be discussed have been discussed, but two more to be discussed uh, after this break. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are back. I said discussed about 14 times right before we went to uh, break. I'll try not to do that this time, except for one more time. Joe, who should we discuss <laughs> next? My next player to chat about, Taylor, is Gio Reyna, who started and played 76 (laughs) minutes in Borussia Dortmund's 3-1 win over Mainz on Sunday. This was a big win for Dortmund, as we kind of talked about with Juve before in Serie A. Dortmund needed this win, and now they are secure in the Champions League. They're third in the Bundesliga after that with one game to go. They can't be kicked out of the top four in the Bundesliga at this point. So seeing Reyna start a big game that Dortmund needed to win uh, at the right wing spot is always fun to see. He played some on the left as well on this one. Dorman often had their wingers switch. Dorman dominated the ball and controlled possession in this game, but Gio Reyna didn't really play a big part in that. And I watched the clips at first, and I'm thinking, man, what's what's wrong? What's going on? He's not getting as involved as he normally does. And I was thinking about even watching another player's clips to talk about someone else instead. But then I remembered why we do these shows, in addition to just having fun talking about players doing cool stuff. We do them to talk about how players can improve. And so I went back through, watched most of the clips again, watched most of his moments again for the second time, and and watched them through the lens of thinking, well, why isn't he as involved? Why isn't he as active? And I think I found an answer, Taylor, if you'll permit me. I think I I I know know why. So Reyna's comfortable inside, playing as either a 10 or in that half space. And we see that with the U.S. men's national team, and we see it a lot with Dortmund as well under Lucien Favre, and then later on with coaching changes and Terzic and all of that later in the season. But Reyna didn't tuck inside in this game for 99% of his on-ball actions. He spent so much time pinned out wide on the right side as Dortmund tried to overload Mainz's back five. They defended a little bit deeper, and so apparently their approach in this game, from what I could observe, was we're going to keep at least our right side wide. And it was it was Munier on that right side, and it was Gio Reyna trying to pull out Mainz's left wing back and overload them and, and stick out wider and then drive into space and get behind that back line. And we've talked about this before, Taylor. I didn't remember it until a little bit ago as I was watching those clips. But we talked about this before when Emre Chan was playing right back for Dortmund earlier on this season. When when Giorena has to stay wide, either to accommodate a more defensive right back or 
to accommodate a game plan. I don't think he's as effective because he doesn't get involved as much. He doesn't combine as much. And I think we saw that in this game. He's limited when he plays a little bit wider. And, and that's what ended up happening for Dortmund. My assumption there would be you're always going to make sure that you game plan for Erling Haaland if you're an opponent playing Borussia Dortmund. You're going to game plan for Jaden Sancho right. and trying to have somebody stay on him or where is he at any given moment. Probably the same for Marco Royce. Of that attacking foursome for Dortmund, I've already listed three. The fourth would be, would be Gio Reyna. And he seems like the one that would maybe be least prepared for. I'm not trying to be discourteous. I just think the other three are so important to that Dortmund attack that it has me wondering if maybe there's an idea of we'll send him out wide. They won't like if you send Jaden Sancho wide, I think there's still going to be eyes on him. What do we need to do? How do we accommodate that with Gio Reyna? Maybe you send him wide and it requires minds to be like, oh, right, he's over there. We got to go get him. And maybe there's that like it opens things up. Maybe it causes some problems. But I'm with you then that there's a lot of maybes there. There's a lot of conditionals and hypotheticals. And the reality is that you still want that player to – it's almost what we've talked about with Serginho Dest in the past of if you're going to put that player out wide and give them the ball, they then need to create a little bit. They need to take people on. They need to establish that they're a threat and then need to be closed down, and then they will pull people out. And if you don't do that, then that doesn't happen, and it doesn't really help. So I think I'm with you on that being – a negative as opposed to a sort of feature of what Dortmund were trying to do. And that's what I want to see Gio Reyna improve. He really is dangerous when he's tucked inside. He's dangerous on the half turn. He's a little bit lankier than Christian Pulisic, which is why I think oftentimes it looks like maybe he's not as clean on the ball. But I I do think he is really dangerous when he's pinched in a little bit. But in games where he's not pinched in, and those games are going to come for Dortmund next year and the year after. They've already come for Dortmund this year. When he's a little bit wider... I want to see him work on his ability to maybe drive the ball to the end line and then serve a ball into the box, which he doesn't do a lot of right now, at least that I've noticed. Maybe he can work on his left foot to cut inside from that wide area on the right, then driving into the box. Not Arjen Robin style. I'm not asking him to do that. But maybe develop so he can cut inside and play as an inverted winger on that side in specific moments. He's dangerous on the left when he's a little bit wider cutting inside. I sent you a clip, Taylor, in the 60th minute of this game. He picks up the ball about half field on that left side and just drives inside and combines and looks dangerous. But when he's wide on the right, we don't see that because he's not comfortable there. And I think having a player continue to evolve and continue to grow comfortable in more spaces is only going to improve that player's value. Giorena has a chance to step up his game over the offseason and, and maybe down the line as well. He's still young. But there's a chance for him to evolve and become just a more well-rounded attacking player and grow more comfortable on the on the right wing. And I think, Joe, that, that clip that you sent is the one that kind of made the differences between his game and Christian Pulisic's stand out a little bit more. But I think you've also answered why there's that difference. I think he is lankier. And I think... Like, if you go back and watch Zidane play, his he never has, like, both feet off the ground for a particularly long period of right. time. He usually drags his feet. They're usually really close, and I think that allows him to have quicker movements, quicker uh, changes of direction. And Reyna's stride is just a little bit longer. He picks his feet up a little bit more, and I think that's why he doesn't look as sharp sometimes. He doesn't look as, like, lethal in the dribble, even as he is evading pressure, megging somebody, getting around somebody else. I think it's just that the stride is a little bit longer. The feet are picked up a little bit more more and so the way the optics are it just looks like he is sort of slower and going on these kind of lanky runs when in reality he's still very incisive and very quick in his decision making so I'm glad you made that point because I was wondering like how big the gap was and now I'm inclined to think that there isn't as big of a gap it's just a different style of running and dribbling 
I think Gio Reyna's built a little bit more like a giraffe, and and Christian Pulisic's built a little <laughs> bit more like a leopard or or a cheetah. I guess I was trying for right? an analogy the whole time. I like those. I just yeah. had to carry on my yeah, giraffe yeah. analogy from the last episode I did oh, that perfect. listener question show. Different context, but same animal. So I think that you know, there's something to be said for that. He's he's just got longer legs and longer limbs in general, which makes it sometimes weird to watch him. His body language, not in terms of his emotions, but in terms of how he moves, is strange in moments. But I don't think that necessarily takes away from what he can do on the ball, unless, of course, he's out wide on the right wing. And then, again, I think there's room to improve. All right. All right. Anything else with Gio Reyna and Brizzy Dortmund, who will be in the Champions League? Uh, Marco Rosa isn't managing a Europa League team next season, even though Borussia Mönchengladbach might not even be in the Europa League. But he'll be at Dortmund. So, too, will Gio Reyna, we would assume. Uh, Jaden Sancho, Erling Holland, we're not sure about. But Gio Reyna, very likely to be at Dortmund in the Champions League next season. Joe, anything else uh, on Mr. Reyna? Take us forward, Taylor. All right, then I will keep us in the Bundesliga uh, to discuss our final player, which is a player that we don't always discuss, tends to be overlooked uh, when you and I sometimes do these shows, is definitely overlooked when I talk to Manuel Veit about uh, Americans in the Bundesliga. Let's talk John Brooks. Oh, yeah. Whose Wolfsburg team, despite drawing 2-2 with RB Leipzig, did secure the final Champions League spot uh, this past weekend. Wolfsburg now on 61 points, four ahead of Eintracht Frankfurt with one game to go. So John Brooks also going to be in the Champions League this season and watching him I was I was sort of trying to see basically my big question with him is always why don't we talk about him more and that's a thing that you would think that I could just control because I'm me Uh, (laughs) but it seems to be the kind of case across the board I, I messaged Manuel about this to ask like how much coverage does John Brooks get in Germany like how why doesn't he get linked with more moves why isn't he a player that's the subject of more speculation or praise and Manuel's uh, point about why he doesn't get uh, transfer speculation is because uh, Volkswagen pay very well <laughs> was it was the uh, the idea there. So I think he is very well compensated, knows he's going to be a starter and is now starting for a Champions League team. So why would you want to jump ship? But the the larger question of why he doesn't get more coverage is, I think, because everybody kind of knows what he is. Americans know that he is a very good center back. He is far and away our number one starting center back, and we know he's going to be very good. But he's not a center back like Sergio Ramos, who's bombing forward and scoring goals, or Gerard Piquet. And so it's tougher to find the sort of highlight moments with him. It just ends up being like, oh, yeah, he did really well. He won that header. Yeah, he's a really good defender. Uh, But I wanted to watch this and see sort of if there was improvement from the other times we've covered him and if there were sort of features of his game that I hadn't noticed. And I definitely saw a a focal point of improvement that made me happy. Joe Lowry, I sent you some clips. Can you guess what it is? Yeah, it's his defending. It has to be. And I, I guess I should defending. I guess I should clarify because he's good in the air or he's really tall. Yep. He's got hops. Mm-hmm. But the defending that we're talking about is his ability to contain the ball when someone's dribbling at him or when the mm-hmm. ball is just generally in his vicinity on the ground. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's and it's especially in sort of transition 1v1 moments when uh, he has to close somebody down on the break, not let them get by, but make a play if he can. And this stands out because other times we've discussed him, we messaged a little bit about this, Joe. I think it was the Gladbach game when he stepped to somebody and just got sort of wall passed really easily around. I don't think it ended up leading to a goal. But there are those moments where he charges out or tries to step out aggressively to win the ball and can get beaten. Some of that is because his positioning isn't great, but also some of it is his technical defending in those 1v1s also wasn't great. It was he's got the long legs because he's got the big frame. So if he's lunging in or taking big strides to try to close down that gap, 
he's more liable to get megged. It's easier to pass around him because he's aggressively closing down with long strides. It's going to be harder to get your footing, to get control, to get right defensive shape. And so we've seen him get bypassed in the past. In this game, I did not see that. Even with Leipzig scoring two goals, he was not responsible. He was not involved in either of them that I saw. What I did see was him on multiple occasions doing the technical thing you want to see to win the ball in those 1v1s and routinely doing just that and winning the ball. And that's taking shorter strides. It's keeping his feet closer together. It's getting down into a more mobile defensive position. It's reading what the attacker is doing. And then it's making a play when the situation is right. He also does the wonderful defender thing of winning the ball cleanly, but then also just getting a teeny bit of the attacker as well, just to always frustrate because I won the ball and I kind of made some contact. I might have just made you think about going at me again next time and I think that's what you want to see from a defender so the way he approached it the shorter steps the the closer legs the physicality but then usually winning the ball as well that was great uh, such that I think his defensive numbers were solid yeah he was seven for nine in 1v1 duels and then Joe as you said he's already good in the air five for six there and usually he was the one that was tasked with stepping out to mark uh, Yusuf Paulson who was the sort of the hold-up player, the number nine for Leipzig in this game. And yeah, those numbers show you that John Brooks did just fine in that battle as well. So overall, a very good game, but it was exciting to be able to see a moment of like, oh, there's improvement. That's a thing that I can tell is different. And it's not just like, yeah, you know, he's a good defender. We'll see what happens next. It was a, a good showing from John Brooks, who I'm sure will be able to do that again in the Champions League. Yeah, I hope so, right? I I'd love to see... This again and again and again, and yeah. hopefully we'll get to see it in Nations League. John Brooks is out today, as we're recording on Tuesday, of training mm-hmm. with a bruised foot, and then Aaron Long tore his ACL, uh, tore his Achilles, excuse me, over the weekend for the Red Bulls. So the, the U.S. center back depth chart might be teetering a little bit and, and some numbers dropping like flies. But if John Brooks can get healthy, and I, I'm sure he will be able to get healthy, I want to see more of this. And one thing that made me think, okay, we, we might actually be able to see more of this, because we really haven't for the last several years of his career is how well he timed his challenges. I yep. feel like that's such a cliche thing that you'll hear on broadcast with some some commentator talking about that. But if you watch the clips from him in this game, if you watch him defending in 1v1 duels, the timing was so, so good from John Brooks. And it has to be for him, right? It absolutely mm. has to be because he doesn't have that quick change of direction, that quick burst of speed. Long distances, sure. Short distances, nah, not so much. But with John Brooks, he would time his challenges such that maybe maybe he'd back off and back off and back off and shuffle and shuffle until the opposing attacker took a little bit too heavy of a touch or until they just took any touch at all, such that the ball was at its furthest point away from that attacker's feet, which then is the time yeah. for Brooks to then step in, win it, and not have exactly. to deal with the fact that he could get blown by and, and get step over and then drive past if you're that opposing attacker. So Brooks's ability to to manage his own his own timing and his own ability to step in and win the ball and not just go for it immediately. That's what I don't think we saw back against Gladbach in February. And if we see that again next week and again in Nations League and again at World Cup qualifiers and Champions League next year, that's that's huge for John Brooks. I don't know if we will, but it's encouraging to see it at all, honestly. Yeah. I mean, and a lot will depend on what happens with Wolfsburg. I think uh, Lacroix, his center-back partner, was the subject of... Uh, transfer speculation today, uh, a couple different Premier League teams interested in him. Uh, so we'll see how intact that Wolfsburg squad is next year. 
But before that, we do have the Euros. And seeing John Brooks be such a critical performer for the second best defensive team in the Bundesliga had me wondering what would happen if he had chosen Germany Mm. instead of the U.S.? I asked Manuel this, expecting him to say, no, there's no chance. And his answer was, yeah, he'd probably be in the conversation. Looking at the other options and who will likely play there, I'm inclined to say that I think if John Brooks chose Germany, I think he is at the very least in the squad for the Euros and possibly starting for them at left center back. Man. Because I think it's going to be uh, Antonio Rudiger, and I we, and we can talk some more about that. But Joe, surprising, right, that John Brooks could be in that conversation? Y- yeah, kind of, but it makes sense, right? He has been genuinely good from for most if not all of this season except in the areas that he he struggles in that sounds like the most duh sentence of all time but we we've talked about that before right he's been so good he's such a good passer of the ball he really is a dangerous defender in the air he's a threat on set pieces and if his 1v1 defense on the ground is improving that only raises his stock i'm trying to think about german center backs i don't know if hummels and boateng will ever be back in i want to hear your list taylor I've got it for you because the the key point here and one of the, the other clip I sent you that wasn't 1v1 defending was his passing, which we already knew existed. But there's a moment in this one where he his it's like a cleared ball. He's the deepest defender. He receives it with his right foot and then bends it around three Leipzig players into like the far touchline with that left foot. And it's the left foot that is so important. And it's what Antonio Rudiger does not have. He, I think, will probably be the left center back or or one of the center backs uh, for Germany, but doesn't have the left foot. When you look at German left-footed center backs, the list, or German-born, excuse me, the list is short. There's uh, Felix Udokai, I apologize, of Augsburg. He's valued at 14.3 million, according to Transfermarkt. There's Jordan uh, Tarunariga of Hertha Berlin, 13.2 million. And then the third is John Brooks, who's uh, also 13.2 million. And I think the only reason why he's third on that list in value is because he's 28 and the other two I mentioned were 23. But those are your top three German-born left-footed center backs. And I think John Brooks, for what Wolfsburg have done, for how strong they've looked and for the strengths of his game as well as the improvements, I think he would be in there. So it makes me really happy that in the past it does seem like, and I think it, it's fair to say that a lot of the players that chose to play for the U.S. that were eligible for Germany weren't doing so because they love the U.S. and could have started for Germany but wanted to play for the United States. But John Brooks, and I think that's kind of where he was, was maybe didn't feel like he was going to get looks with the German national team, chose the United States. But it's just an interesting reality to live in that now he might be in that conversation. Uh, so I'm very happy that he chose the U.S. when he did. And I am confident that he is very, very cap So we're good. We're good on that one. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. I've, I've genuinely never thought about that. We could be doing, as we're starting our, our Euro prep for our Euro previews, mm-hmm. we could be talking about John Brooks with Germany and not getting ready to talk about him, hopefully, in Nations League with the U.S. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy with how things turned out, Taylor. I'm pretty happy. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. So I think that's a good note to end on. I, I welcome your angry letters about how no American would ever be good to start for Germany, uh, but you're wrong because he would. Uh, in fact, he would start at every position. He's the best German player. Uh, there, Joe said that. You should email <laughs> Joe if you disagree. Uh, Joe, anything else to add uh, after I've thrown you under the bus? No, that's good. It's it's not too bad here on the asphalt. It, it really could be a lot worse. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, you are not done with uh, your Total Soccer Show commitments this week. We're going to be doing some listener questions oh, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you, me, and Ryan Bailey. Uh, and then we will be back uh, next week and the weeks after to start doing our Euro previews, our Nations League previews, our Nations League conversations. It's going to be a busy time ahead, Joe. Uh, I-, I hope you're ready to talk into a microphone in front of a computer all summer.
Oh, I'm ready. I'm strapped in. I've got my glass of water. I've got, I don't drink tea, but maybe I should start. I've got everything I need, uh, blue light glasses, whatever you could ask for. I'm ready, Taylor. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Joe. Well, thank you once again for taking the time to discuss some very talented Americans doing very exciting things, both here in the U.S. and abroad. You got it, my friend. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again tomorrow. 